0: All right, let's um, let's just take a moment and prepare our hearts and minds. And um, maybe, if there's a Bible handy, as a little exercise, you can uh, turn to the Book of Acts. <clears throat> and um, between your thumb and forefinger, you can hold the pages of the book of Acts in your hand, and we'll just consider these amazing chapters, and uh, let's pray like that. So Father, we thank you tonight for these pages, for these chapters, for this incredible history, these amazing truths and insights we can gather together uh, as we consider your great work your redemptive work on this earth, reaching men, finding men, saving people. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. We pray you'd use this to instruct us tonight, to minister to our hearts. We thank you for this opportunity. Quicken us by your spirit together, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 24 uh, tonight. And we remember that Paul, if we just reframe the context, we are if we would say that there are four journeys of Paul, we've got the three missionary journeys, and we are in that last final journey uh, from Jerusalem to, to Rome. We remember at the end of the third missionary journey, this is where the journey ends in Jerusalem. And, of course, he is um, arrested in the temple, he is brought to uh, uh, Antipatris by the Roman soldiers to, to get them away, get him away from Jerusalem, and then he's brought on to Caesarea in verse 33. They came to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor. We remember the letter was from the, the Roman Lysias, who was kind of sending the letter with Paul, to the Roman governor of Judea, who is Felix. He's kind of saying, okay now. You, you deal with you deal with this man. So and really it picks off here from Jerusalem. This is just a map that shows all of the journeys. So if we look at the first missionary journey there in the white, relatively speaking that's quite a small loop as he reaches up towards that uh, that region in Asia Minor. The second missionary journey, we can see that there is a um, a wider journey in Asia Minor going over also into into Europe, Philippi, Corinth, etc., and the third missionary journey. Sorry, stretching rather down to to Greece, Athens, and Corinth, and the last one is the red line on the map there, which is a one-way ticket. That's Paul going to Rome. Of course, you don't see the return on there. So um, he's brought before the governor of Judea. So if we look at this. You, the, the, the Roman province of Judea isn't just the area of Judea, but it also involves these other areas as well. But they refer to it as the province of Judea. Um, this is the same province that Pilate was the governor over, Pilate when uh, of, of Christ, of Christ's time before the cross. Um, and Paul is going to be brought before... Uh, Marcus um, Felix, Marcus Antonius uh, Felix. And you can see on this board here, it mentions some of the governors for us. And it's the bottom three that should jump out at us. Pilate, of course, the governor at the time of Christ's trials. Felix is the governor that Paul is going to meet now. And in the next chapter, uh, Festus, two years later, is the next governor that Paul will also meet. All governors of Judea. So this is going to be Paul's third defense in a short period, a two-week period. We know that he had his defense uh, before the Jews themselves. Then he had his uh, defense um, before the Sanhedrin. And now there's another defense that's going to take place before Felix, the governor. Felix is quite a notorious character in history. If you read up about him, he wasn't uh He wasn't um, loved by the Jews. Uh, He was known for his cruelty, his promiscuity, uh, abuse of power. Um, He was the cause of lots of uh, strife and uh, uprisings that he would often have to ask for Rome's help to come and squelch problems that he had in his uh, uh, province. Uh, Tacitus, the historian, said that he held the office of a king, but ruled with the mind of a slave. For he was, in fact, a Greek slave that had uh, been freed and found his way up to prominence and become a governor uh, in Judea. He was described as a very cruel man. If we pick up on uh, the last... uh, That's as close as we could get to a photograph of him right there. If we pick up on the last uh, few verses of Acts 23... Uh, we see, and when the governor had read the letter, he asked what province he was from, Cilicia. And he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So this was in the, in the palace or under his custody. If you go to Caesarea and... Uh, I, I dream that one day we'll get to walk that land together. It's an amazing uh, coastline on the Mediterranean, incredible ruins, an amphitheater and a chariot uh, area there. And the ruins of Herod's uh, palace is there, which would have been uh, where Felix was. And in the lower re parts of that palace were the, the prison cells, if you like, or the holding rooms where Paul um, is believed to have been held during this time. So if we go to chapter 24, let's jump in. After five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So, Paul probably, if these Jews hadn't come from Jerusalem, probably in time he would have been let go. The charges wouldn't have stuck, they weren't connected to breaking any Roman laws. But the Jews, the accusers, followed along and, uh, and, and brought this case before uh, Felix. This is similar to Paul when he used to be Saul of Tarsus, that he was pursuing Christians, wanting them to find their end in their judgment. And now again, this is the same thing that's happening to him. He's got zealous Jews who are pursuing him uh, to bring him to trial, hopefully to bring him to to his end. And this time, even Ananias, the high priest, comes in person. It was that important. A 70-mile trip. And they bring along with them Tertullus, who was a great orator, uh, no doubt familiar with the Roman laws, probably a lawyer in a sense, and uh, wanted to bring him this trained speaker to, to represent them in the case. So, the prosecution counsel will stand to their feet, present the charges, and the first order of business is to butter up the judge a little bit. And that's what we see in these first uh, first verse here, verse 2. And when he was called upon, began his accusation saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. Now to say that's a little bit of a <laughs> embellishment, or exaggeration or outright lie is, is, is nothing because it, it certainly wasn't founded on any historical record we have of this, uh, of this particular character. Um, the truth, uh, as we've mentioned, is that he was certainly not a contributor to peace or prosperity uh, in the region. But these words were just to puff up uh, Felix, the judge, the current governor, and uh, and and go from there. So, he says in verse three, we accepted always in all places most noble Felix with all thankfulness. Um, verse three, yeah. So, um, verse twenty-four. Nevertheless, not to be, not to be tedious to you any further. I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. In other words, oh, we could talk about, we could sing your praises all day. You are, you know, we could, we could talk about all of your accomplishments, but let's just put that aside and we all recognize that that is a known truth. Let's move on to the case at hand. So now he jumps into the accusations. There are three we could identify. The first one in verse five, we have found this man a plague. Different translations have it different ways. The, the word there is, comes from the idea of pestilence. He is a pestilent fellow. He is a troublemaker, could be a, a good word for that. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Well, that's quite something to say as they're accusing Paul, who's in the presence of the governor. They're saying, this man has brought dissension throughout all of the, through the Jews in all the world. This, this world, by the way, which you have contributed such peace and prosperity to, this man is a threat to that. So he's painted as one who, who is a troublemaker, who is um, going to undermine authority, who is not contributing to what Rome is all about. The second charge is that he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, the sect of the Nazarenes, because, of course, Jesus was from Nazareth, and so it was associated with that, that the Christians were a sect of the Nazarenes. It's not connected to the Nazarene church today, but in the first century, it was another term that was used for Christianity, as well as the way was another term that was used. And he is referred to as a, as a, a ringleader of this sect, and the accusation, that the point that's being made here is that this is not mainstream Judaism. He is not representing what what orthodox traditional Judaism is really about. He's part of this loose uh, sect. And um, the third charge in verse 6... Uh, Oh, have I missed verse 6? No, I haven't. There it is Yeah, He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. So this, again, this is a reference to what happened in the previous chapter. Um, he was in the temple. He brought these Gentiles in. He profaned the temple. Remember the accusation he is against Moses, the temple, and our people. We saw him bring Gentiles into where where they with the Jewish area where they should not have been, etc. We know that that um, that wasn't accurate. Wasn't quite true. Also, it says here, we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Again, the truth was that they got a hold of him, they were beating him up, ready to stone him to death when the Roman soldiers arrived and effectively saved Paul's life at the time. Um, and the reason that they wanted to kill him again was particularly on the word Gentiles. After speaking about Jesus has resurrected from the grave, and he has sent me to the Gentiles, and that was the uh, point where the crowd went crazy. But verse 7, But the commander, Lysias, came and with great violence took him out of our hands. In other words, we could have dealt with it, peaceably and all nicely according to our law, but The Roman governor got in the way and he took him away from us. And the instruction he gave us was to come to you and bring our accusations to you. In verse 8, commanding his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things which we accuse him are true. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So as, as this, their representative is putting forth the case, he finally says, okay, these are the accusations against him. If you ask him yourself, and it's believed perhaps that's referring to the Roman governor. If you ask the governor himself, he'll tell you rather than Paul. But you can make your own allusion to that. Um, And it says the Jews, they're also murmuring, perhaps not unlike the House of Commons. You know, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're they're agreeing, they're consenting with what has just been said. So then, Felix, um, without any word, expressing his great authority, just looks over to Paul and gives him the nod that he is now able to say a few words. Verse 10. So Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered and said, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge in this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. In other words, he acknowledges the fact that Felix has, been, has got some experience. He, he knows the ways of the Jews. And if there is, there's anywhere that Paul might get a fair trial, it's certainly not back in Jerusalem, but perhaps before noble Felix, um, he, might, he might have a better hearing. He says in verse 11, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. In other words, let's start here. It's true I was in Jerusalem. That's an established known fact. That part of the story is true. I was in Jerusalem. I was in the temple. I was seen by, by the, the other Jews there. But the charges against me do not stand, because I went up there to worship. Verse 12, and they neither found me in the temple, disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. So in other words, charge number one, that I'm a troublemaker and I'm causing dissension and problems, That charge is is not, not accurate. There's no basis for charge number one. Verse 13, Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. So no proof, no real witnesses. This is a trumped up charge and it does not stand. And now he goes to charge number two, where he says, about him being the the, uh, leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Again, that was to say that he wasn't mainstream. And to this he says, in verse 14, uh, there, this I confess to you. Now, um, if we jump back to a couple of verses in chapter 23, we remember that when the Roman uh, commander sent the letter to Felix, He says in the letter, when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning the questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving death of chains. In other words, the Roman commander said, this is like a religious issue that the Jews should be sorting out. There's no Roman law that's broken here. That's what I worked out over to you, Felix. So, Paul is also making that same point. He says in verse 12, I wasn't causing any riot. There's no proof that that was the case. And then he says in verse 14, But this I do confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of my fathers. Now, this is an incredible claim and connection that Paul is making in verse 14. This is what he's saying. He's saying according to the way and he uses that other term for Christianity according to John 14:6 where Jesus said I am the way it became a known term used 6 times in the book of Acts for Christians who are in the way following the way. He says according to the way I worship the God of my fathers. So he makes a direct connection to the one true God of the Jews and that through the way he is actually worshipping that same, that one true God. He's validating the way to be be true and and correct. He says that is their accusation but I am a worshipper of the true God. I worship God the God of our fathers, as a follower of the way. So as much as they would like to separate this over here as some sect that is disconnected, Paul brings it right back under the honorable banner of Judaism and says, listen, through, it's through the way that I am actually worshipping and honouring the God of our fathers. And he drives the point home by saying, believing all things that are written in the law and the prophets, so that's a very powerful statement to back that up. Through the way I'm worshipping the true God and I'm believing all things that are written in the prophets. Everything we believe and teach in the way as Christians is recognizing the fulfilment of the prophecies that show that Jesus who died and is risen again is actually the Messiah, the Son of God, the sent one by the God of our fathers. There is no contradiction but I worship the God of our fathers. I am a follower of the way and a believer of the law and the prophets. So Paul claims that they are in perfect harmony. He believes all things that the Old Testament prophets have said. It reminds us a little bit of Luke 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus himself comes alongside and he says to them, All oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Son of Man to go through his suffering to enter into his glory? And then he opened the scriptures and expounded through the prophets and Moses and the Psalms concerning himself. And of course, that was always the premise with the apostles, Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. This, is, this was their go-to foundation to to verify that Jesus was the messiah it was go to the prophets and show the fulfillment so and then he makes his next point in verse 15 he says i have hope in god which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead both of the just and the unjust and again this is a masterful point because Um, with the Jews, okay, the Sadducees had their own ideas, but with the Pharisees, certainly, there was an acknowledgement of a future resurrection. And Paul is just saying, I believe in the resurrection and so do they. Any Sadducees that were present at this time would have had to bite their tongue and be quiet because they couldn't bring that up in front of Felix and bring dissension as accusers, so they would have just had to quietly uh, go with that. Verse 16, and this being so, I always, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. So Paul is saying, listen, this I know that how I am conducting and living and believing and speaking, I do it with a conscience as far as I know that has no offense. Towards God and men, particularly in the issue of my faith and what I believe and why I'm standing here today. Remember when he said that before the Sanhedrin in in chapter 23, he was swiftly struck on the on the mouth for, for saying that. But this was Paul really saying, Yes, I confess I'm in the way, but I worship the God of our fathers, I believe the prophets. I believe in the resurrection. I have a clean conscience before God and before men. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. That's what he's saying. So, it's quite, and this word is quite a word to throw out conscience, particularly in the, in the, before Felix, before this pompous orator who's representing them, before the high priest Ananias, who is known to be so corrupt and before the Sanhedrin, who had tried to trump up charges, of course they did with Christ, and they did the same with Paul again. So he just speaks about a conscience honoring the truth and the light in his life. He says, so, so what does he say? He said, these charges, bam, 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 these charges are not, not correct. They're not accurate. You, they cannot be proven. There are, there are no witnesses. If you really want to know what happened, here it is, verse 17. Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. In other words, this is why I was in Jerusalem. It wasn't to start any trouble. It was because as a Jew I came to the temple and I wanted to pay alms and offerings to my nation as a Jew. That's why I came. And in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with any tumult or trouble when they found me in the temple i was actually observing the nazarite vow i was purified i was observing the law for which i'm accused of attacking i was actually observing the law what is the problem here exactly and also my accusers where are my accusers Now remember, the high priest was there, some of the elders were there, a representation of the Sanhedrin were there, but the original Jews that had come from Asia, Asia Minor, the province, to accuse Paul were not there. So Paul says, not only are the things that are said against me not true, but where are my accusers? Where are the original Jews that pointed me out and dragged me to the Sanhedrin? They're not here. Because Roman law said that if you brought a charge against someone, you had to be present at the case as the accusers. And Paul says, one thing to note is they're not even present. And this is verse 19. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. at this point, Tertullus is probably like, you know, the Jews are probably, you know, kicking... You know, the, the, the case is kind of crumbling a little bit here. Because not only are the charges looking a bit weak, but there's no witnesses. In verse 20, he says, Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. He acknowledges that the Jews that are there, they were some of them were in chapter 23 at, this, at the council. And he says, okay, the original Jews from Asia are not here, but some of the Sanhedrin are here. And ask them, when I stood before the council, was there anything, any wrongdoing found in me? Perhaps he pauses and lets it sink in a bit. And then he says, unless, verse 21, unless, and he's bringing you all to this glorious head unless it is for this one statement which i cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead i am being judged by you this day maybe this is the real issue it's my belief and declaration as an witness to this truth that jesus is risen from the grave Perhaps the whole idea about being accused, about being against the temple or the law of Moses, perhaps that is all peripheral. The real issue is that I have spoken about the resurrection. And I stand on that. I believe that that Jesus is risen from the grave. It's so masterful how Paul once again brings this whole thing to the gospel very conscious, with a real evangelical heart that hopefully we all have or can develop, is to consider those who may be in the room, at the back, at the bus stop, wherever, who don't know the gospel. And that awareness with the leading of the Spirit, not contrived or forced, but being available for the gospel always to be brought to the, to the, to the center. And Paul always uh, does that. Verse 22, when Felix heard these things. So at the moment, he's just been sitting there quietly. When Felix heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a little insightful fact about Felix that the scriptures bring out, that Luke brings out under inspiration. That Felix, the governor of Judea, had some understanding of Christianity. He was well acquainted with the way. He was not a believer, he was not saved, he hadn't put his faith in Christ, but he understood some of the tenets of Christianity. You could say he understood the way, but he was not in the way. You can certainly have so much knowledge and yet not have a saving faith. It's sadly so possible for people to be sitting in churches even Sunday after Sunday and they are well acquainted with the way. They know the facts and yet perhaps not truly saved. Hopefully in an evangelical church the gospel is echoed enough that the Spirit of God can can really draw them and show them their need for Christ. So it says that having a more accurate knowledge of the way, adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. This could be alluding back to when they actually said, if you question Lysias the governor, he'll tell you himself. Could be he's alluding back to that. But he's saying, okay, court adjourned. Thank you for coming. It was great to hear from everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye. I'm hitting the pause button, Paul's going to go back to where he was and and we'll send you an email when we're ready. It's not happening today. So, he knew, or perhaps perceived, that their accusations were unfounded. He defers the verdict. certainly recognizes that no crime has been committed in terms of Roman law. So he says, I'm going to put Paul on house arrest until the captain comes down. And by the way, we never hear of the captain ever arriving. But Paul is now imprisoned. And um, Felix does not hear Paul again, not in this official sense. But later in the chapter, we do see that Felix and his wife, in fact, hear Paul again and again and again for two years concerning the gospel concerning the faith so let's pick it up in verse 23 so he commanded the centurion to keep paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him so the jews depart they go back to jerusalem paul is in prison the verdict is deferred paul is on house arrest he has some liberties in the providence of God, but also as a Roman citizen, he has those privileges, and his friends can come and minister to him. We could say the Lord was with Paul. We read the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Paul. And even his friends would come and visit him, and I paused for a moment, I thought, his friends, who would that have been? Well, it would have certainly been Philip, who lived in Caesarea. Remember, he had been in Caesarea for 20 plus years. From the, from the Ethiopian, the baptism, when he, he ended up in Caesarea. He had daughters, he had a ministry there. And now, Paul the Apostle was imprisoned in Caesarea. You can be sure that Philip was one of his regular visitors, as perhaps his daughters and other believers in that area. Now, we could ask the question, why did Felix do this? Why did Felix say, okay, court adjourned, farewell, goodbye, lock him up. Well, we're told in the last verse of this chapter that he did it because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. He wanted to earn favor with the Jews. So he didn't just dismiss it and let Paul go. He kept it, if you like, on the back burner, as far as anyone was concerned. Oh yeah, I'll deal with this, just not now. And he did that because he wanted to to get favor from the Jews. We also learn in the next couple of verses that he hoped to get bribes from Paul historically this is something that was known about him, any way that he could extort or get extra money on the side, he would do that. So often he would meet with Paul and in parentheses it says and he was always hoping that he would get a bribe from Paul with all of his many friends that are visiting. Maybe they can raise up some funds or something. But we cannot um, help but believe that perhaps he also wanted to, he was so attracted or curious or drawn by the Lord to not Paul the man necessarily, but all that he represented. The the conviction, the truth, the peace, the faith that this man had, the assurance that he had. And Felix as an observer, being acquainted with the way, knowing something about Christianity. And here is the Apostle Paul before him. And now in his great power and privilege he can have him under lock and key at his to his own access whenever he wanted to do that so now we go behind the scenes everyone's dismissed we're at the praetorium in Caesarea Paul is locked up and Felix is there and now we kind of go behind the scenes in verse 24 and it says after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla who was Jewish he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, you have to speculate a little bit. Could it be that he was just a man of knowledge and wanted to know the different views? Or could it be that he was genuinely interested and wanted to understand the gospel? We don't know. There's no record of him getting saved or becoming a believer. But there is a record of him repeatedly for two years Calling on Paul to talk about the issues of the gospel. There's definitely something going on there. I wish there was a couple of more chapters here, don't you, on that? I wish there was another chapter or two that just opened up those conversations that they had and the questions and all that Paul said. But we don't really need them to know what Paul would have said. We know that Paul was such an opportunity, opportunist. Any time he would have to be able to share the gospel and exalt Christ, he would do that. No matter who the audience was, whether it was a pauper or a king, he, was not, not, he, would, he would always be bringing the gospel to the center. I mean, you can be sure that in all of those times, uh, Christ was, was, was clearly presented to him. It says he came with his wife, Drusilla. Now, this needs a little bit of a family tree. uh, So let's do that. It tells us that Drusilla was a Jew. If you go back to Herod the Great, this is going back to the beginning of Luke when the babies were born and Herod wanted to kill the little babies. This is Drusilla's great-grandfather. So she has quite a line here. It's the Herodian dynasty. Uh, Herod Agrippa II is the last in the Herodian line of kings. So her great-grandfather was Herod the Great. He had a few children. One of them uh, is Herod Antipas, right here. This is the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. This is the Herod who Jesus himself called a fox. This is the Herod who tried Jesus just before the cross. He had another son, Aristobulus, who was the father of Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I is the other Herod that we read about, not in the Gospels, but in the book of Acts. This is the Herod who saw James killed in chapter 12, and this is the Herod who had Peter imprisoned. This is the Herod who, at the end of chapter 12, because of his great pride, was struck down by God. And then Herod Agrippa had some children, a son and two daughters. Herod Agrippa II, who we're going to see Paul meet in chapter 26, was effectively kind of married to his sister. It was a bit weird. It was Agrippa and Bernice were a couple, kind of married, although they were brother and sister. And the other sister, or the other daughter of Herod Agrippa the first, was Drusilla. And it's this Jewish princess, Drusilla, the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great, who married Felix, the governor. History tells us that Felix actually saw her. Apparently, she was beautiful, a young teenager, already married to another king, and basically, he stole her away from him and, and earned himself this young, beautiful Jewish bride. Both of them, uh, both uh, Drusilla and Felix, are now hearing the gospel. What's incredible to note here is that Drusilla is one of two notable people who were killed in the Vesuvius eruption of Pompeii. This is 19 years after this. It's interesting to note because um, here they are for two years, hearing the gospel with the most, in, hearing perhaps the greatest preacher, the greatest person who could bring forth the treasures of grace and interpret the cross and bring show them the gospel so clearly. They had him speaking to them continually for two years. What an incredible opportunity! What did they do with it? I don't know, but a few years later, 17, 18 years later, she would be attending some great function uh, with her son also. And they were there at Pompeii, and that was to be the last fateful night. But God certainly gave an amazing opportunity. Now, so... Let's just jump to uh, verse 25. Now, as he reasoned about, so what Drusilla and Felix, they met with Paul, they they speaking about the issues of the faith and it says, as he reasoned about, and notice this, this is what Paul reasoned about. Perhaps on the first meeting, or we don't know, or somewhere down the line, he was always clearly presenting the gospel for sure. But on some occasions, there were subjects that were a little bit uncomfortable for Felix and Drusilla. Subjects like righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. When Paul hit those themes with no apologies, it says that Felix was afraid and said, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Now, Felix, remember, he was an ex-slave. He clawed his way to the top. He had this beautiful wife. He, he lived with great luxuries and licentiousness, and he was a very cruel man. And confronted with the truth and the Holy Spirit, pricking his own conscience, he became very, very fearful to the point that he would want to stop his ears. And because he had the, the ability to do so, he would just say, okay, Paul, Goodbye, and just lock, lock the door again. He says, come back when it's more convenient. She was on her second marriage, and he was on his third marriage. And there was conviction in the heart that struck home. Felix trembled. The irony here that now the judge is the one that's on trial. Now the great judge, the great governor of all Judea is on trial under the finger of God. Standing before this little Jew, this little Jewish man, the Apostle Paul. Paul the aged at this point. And now uh, Felix himself is on trial. And again, as far as we know, we don't read that he humbled himself before God. We imagine, perhaps, uh, at least I I thought of uh, Pharaoh and Moses and how Pharaoh, Exodus 10.3, refused to humble himself before God. Perhaps this was the same that could be applied here. He heard, and this is the incredible thing. It wasn't with the absence of light or the absence of opportunity, but in the greatest opportunity, and yet as Romans 1 speaks about suppressing the truth, denying the truth, stopping the ears. Okay, Paul, that's enough. That's enough. I don't want to hear about that anymore. And this phrase, when it's convenient, I will send for you. Oh, in different ways, I've heard that over the years. It's part of a ministry. It's part of the Christian life. It's part of being a pastor there are some, and we understand it because we have flesh also. We understand the tendencies, the pull, the familiarity, the draw. We understand what it means for us to say, oh, I would like to take Christianity on my terms. Okay, I acknowledge, I tick, tick the boxes. I believe it's the inspired Word of God. I believe it's God's people. I believe God speaks to me. I believe I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. I believe check, 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 check. But, yeah not today it's crazy isn't it we understand it though we understand it that there has to be a purposed decision of discipleship from each one of our hearts we have to recognize the flesh identify the flesh and drag it to the cross and make decisions of faith because we have made a decision I don't want convenient Christianity I want to be a Christian of conviction not convenience Oh, you know, well, no matter what, I will go forward. Well, as long as, it's, as long as I'm not too tired, as long as it's not raining, as long as the family don't come over, as long as whatever it will be. Ironically, the name Felix in Latin means happy. And there are a lot of people who would like a Christianity that makes them happy, a Felix Christianity that makes them happy, and it's convenient, and it's on their terms. But meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. And I couldn't help be struck with the irony of that. Remember, actually, it just comes to mind now, when when, uh, Peter and John were coming to the gate beautiful at the temple... And there is the beggar who's begging for alms. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none. But what I do have in the name of Jesus Christ, I give to you. And you think about, oh, do you realize who you're talking to? This is Peter and John. And you will beg for a few coins when what they can give you is so much greater than that. And here is King, the King, uh, the governor, sorry, Felix, who is looking to Paul. And he, what is he thinking? Maybe I can get money from him. And there is so much more, so something that is eternal, that is life-enriching, life-changing, that Felix could very personally come into a personal relationship with the living God, if he would just humble himself before this, this man and this message and put his faith in Christ. But he looked for a bribe. You could say it's, um, it's such an incredible picture a graphic picture of a missed opportunity we spoke about that when we studied judas a few weeks ago what an incredible opportunity he had being with christ himself for three years and yet missed it the same here with felix for those two years and we could take we could take jesus and Judas out of the picture, and Felix and Paul out of the picture, and just say, well, doesn't it, isn't it applicable everywhere in the 21st century? That there is a church in the middle of the street, in the town, right? The gospel in, in our country is, is available, and yet there is spiritual warfare in the Western world, and busy life, and all of the things that can rob people of the most important thing. So, It says he thought he would get a bribe, that he would release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. And to that, we would say whatever the motive was in Felix's heart, you can be sure that Paul still saw it as an extension of God's long-suffering and grace and opportunity to Felix one more time to be able to hear and believe We'll close here, verse 27. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So Festus, uh, Felix, sorry, goes back off to uh, Rome. And now there's a new governor in town, a new sheriff on the block. And what does he he inherit as he comes to the praetorium in Caesarea, locked up in the dungeon down below, is on house arrest, is Paul. It's a little bit, reminds me of a little bit of the trilogy of the three kings we spoke about in Daniel, remember? Nebuchadnezzar, and then Belshazzar, and then Darius. And it was like each one of them came onto the stage and had this incredible opportunity with Daniel, to hear the gospel, to believe in the true God, and now one governor passes off the scene, another governor comes onto the scene, and we say, Festus, what will you do? What will you do with this opportunity and with this with this truth? He became the governor around 58 AD um, because Nero ordered the, the uh, replacement, and now Paul will have to appear before Festus, and that's the next chapter, so Father, we thank you tonight that once again we could gather here on this Tuesday night. We could open your word. We could consider this incredible story, this amazing history of the early church, of the Apostle Paul. We could go today to these places in Caesarea. We can go to Rome and Jerusalem and go through Israel. We can see these places. We can see the Pilates stone we can we can study this history we we and and how you were working through these uh, apostles and disciples and believers in the early church as the gospel went into all the world and in many ways some of these things are just the same always opposition always uh, the gates of hell would, all, would, would want to prevail against the church. all oh, Jesus, but you are building your church. You are doing a great work. You are drawing the hearts of men. You are giving opportunities again and again to people, people even in our own lives, that we may be a witness to them. We pray for that. We pray, God, let us be messengers. Let us be a light in this world. We pray you'd use these these verses tonight to speak to our hearts about our walk of faith, about the privilege of being a disciple, about standing in our convictions and living by faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.